You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, which I just left, by the way, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Malcolm Moran. He is a sports writer. He is a sports journalist. I don't know if he's won every single award that you can possibly win, but he's won a whole bunch of them and deservedly so. He was a columnist at the New York Times, USA Today, and other publications. He also is the director of the Sports Capital Journalism Program, at IUPUI since January 2013. He is a graduate of Fordham University. We don't get many graduates of Fordham University on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Malcolm, thank you very much for joining us. It's an honor. Thanks. It's very kind of you to say those nice things, and it's nice to be here. Sports seems to be ingrained in all of us in one way or the other. The, the, the folks who I know who pay no attention to sports uh, are is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Uh, when did you get the bug about sports, and how did that lead you into a career in journalism? Well, the, the when I was really bitten... I mean, I could go back earlier than this, but when I was in high school growing up in New York City, there was a remarkable stretch from late 1968 through the spring of 70, which in the country was one of the most tumultuous periods in history. But in terms of you know, the world that we're talking about, And as it applied to New York City, you had the Jets winning the old American Football League championship, beating the Oakland Raiders in a brutal championship game. And then going on and against all odds, beating the then Baltimore Colts in the Super Bowl as the biggest upset in Super Bowl history. Then in the following summer, and you had the Mets, who had never finished higher than ninth. <laughs> ninth. You know, and, the, and 1969 was the first year of divisional play leading to a league 
championship series. So at the start of that season, just the, the notion that the Mets can't finish ninth anymore was considered some kind of step forward based on what was a very sad history to that point. And they wind up winning 100 games, winning the division going away, sweeping the Braves in the playoffs, and then beating the heavily favored Orioles in five games. Yeah, basically, they lost the first game, then won the next four. So that was almost right. a sweep of them. And, and then the following spring, the Knicks win their first and one of two championships in their long history. And so you not only have the achievement, and you not only had Hall of Fame players on all those teams, you know, whether it was Tom Seaver, a young Nolan Ryan, uh, Joe Namath, Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, but I mean, they were very, very interesting people. And so, you know, in those days, obviously, you know, a decade plus before ESPN, when other than scores, very little of the information that you would get about what happened in last night's game was via broadcast. I mean, a, a little bit on TV, I mean, a small sliver on the 11 o'clock news. And I mean, depending on the radio station and the emphasis, there would be a little bit more. And there was some very good commentary going on in radio in New York at the time. But by far the primary source was the newspapers, which at the time was uh, you know, the Daily News, the Post, the New York Times, Newsday on Long Island. And there was so much going on at such a high level and so much to read and think about that I would find myself thinking during the game. And I wonder what Paul Zimmerman who Right, Dr. Z. Became Dr. Z at Sports <laughs> Illustrated. In those days, he was Paul Zerman, and he was a very tenacious, knowledgeable beat guy covering the Jets for the New York Post. And, and I would sit at a game and think, like, I wonder what Paul Zerman is going to say about this tomorrow. So that, that's the period that really planted the seed. Mike Greenberg famously says that he used to sleep in – uh, Walt Clyde Frazier pajamas. Did you sleep in any sports heroes pajamas? No, no, I did. I did have a Namath jersey, a white number 12 jersey. And this is during a period where, I mean, you didn't see people all over the place wearing players jerseys. I mean, that, that marketing strategy was in its infancy. Um, I think I made a Mickey Mantle jersey earlier in the 60s. I mean, I, I mean, I got a Yankee jersey that was blank with no number and created a number seven on the back. And, and that was about it. Did you ever think about naming your child seven like George Costanza wanted to? Uh, I, I don't think that would have been well received. <laughs> Did Just you guess? <laughs> you know, another thing that was happening at that time in New York, or at least related to New York, as you were growing up and maturing in the early 70s, was the Bobby Fischer saga, his quest for the World Chess Championship. And 
actually he was hiding out before the match with Spassky in Queens. Mm-hmm. I can't think of it's Dun Dunsterton or something like that. That's a that's a Douglaston maybe. Douglaston, yeah, Queens. Which Were I you, believe is where John McEnroe grew up. And Mary and Mary Carrillo. Yeah. Mary Carrillo, I think, grew up in the same spot. Uh, but do you remember that at all? The 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 Fisher saga? And I don't how- remember him hiding out, but I, I would endorse anybody preparing for a strenuous intellectual pursuit. I mean, there's no better place than Queens to uh, to hang out as you're as you're gearing up. It's not just a place with a couple of airports. I mean, I would. I mean, friends would tell me, like, does anybody really live there? Didn't Archie you Bunker know, live there? It's a place where, the, like, people just pass through. And I would point out that, like, if you just took the population of that one borough it would rank pretty impressively on a national list. Not to mention the diversity and just like the food and everything about it. Well, you had the Bunkers and the Jeffersons. They lived in Queens. That's right. Um, It was was a melting pot uh, on (laughs) on the network. What was it like growing up? We've had a f- not many, but a few folks uh, who grew up in New York City uh, on the podcast. Donnie Walsh, right? Who I'm sure you know, and then a journalist, uh, music critic who worked at the Star, uh, now is at the Historical Society. Mark Allen, who regales us with the fact that he grew up in New York City and every act in music always played New York City. So the list of concerts that he's seen is simply incredible. But what was it like growing up in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s? Well, I think that the thing that a lot of people would have a hard time fully appreciating un- unless they were there to see it is that, I mean, there's a tendency from a distance to just look at this behemoth of a place that's completely impersonal and gigantic and impossible to navigate and traffic all over the place. And, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not saying there's no traffic in New York City, but I, I think what people, whether, whether you grow up there or whether you go there, say after college for professional reasons or, it, or a spouse's professional reasons, I think the discovery that people make is that you have all these neighborhoods that are woven together. And, and there are actually, there, there's a significant percentage of New Yorkers, you know, and I'm, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I'll, I'll give you my late uncle as an example. I mean, he lived maybe 15 miles from Manhattan in Queens. And I, I think he may have gone into Manhattan once in the last 25 years of his life because he felt that where he was, he had his hangouts, he had his places to go, he was comfortable, he didn't want to have to deal with that, you know, whether it's the expense or the traffic or the bridge or the tunnel or whatever. And, and so he was happy with everything he had in that neighborhood. So so there's that. I mean, there's all these little enclaves, some of them more and more pronounced from some ethnic group, which is where the food comes in 
and the incredible diversity of places to go. And then on top of that, you've you've got this international magnet for you know pick an area, art, theater, culture, sports, concerts. The, the price of concert tickets in the early 1970s, early to mid 70s, I mean, somebody that you know, went to a lot of concerts before the current circumstances shut that down would be amazed that like you could, you could go see high-end acts in Central Park and pay maybe five or six dollars max. And my brother saw Led Zeppelin for nine dollars. And that that probably, depending on when it was, I mean that that's pretty high end. You could see, I mean, I remember in the summer of '74, Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, which was the old minor league ballpark, best known as the the place where Jackie Robinson made his professional debut uh, for the Montreal Royals. The, Dodgers AAA Farm Club. Well, at that point, Roosevelt Stadium was kind of this dilapidated, broken down place, but a concert promoter decided it was cheaper to put on shows there than have to pay rent at places like the Garden or Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium. And so all summer long, I mean, there would be these, these dual concerts, Chicago and the Doobie Brothers played Roosevelt Stadium. Uh, the Eagles and the Beach Boys together one night played Roosevelt Stadium. And it, I would be shocked if it was more than 11 or $12 for, for two shows in one place like that. So it's, I mean, it's almost like there are, there are multiple New Yorks. There, there isn't just the one place. And, and, it, and it comes down to you know, what, what you want to get out of it. Because Manhattan's referred to as the city, right? Do I have that right? Well, it, go it into the city. Go is into one of the, the city. I learned when I went to Fordham, which was in the Bronx, which is largely north of Manhattan. And what I learned was people in the Bronx and Westchester would talk about going downtown, meaning Manhattan, where people in Queens would talk about going into the city. They were going to the same place, <laughs> but it depended on your point of view. From a sports perspective, uh, leaving Mark Allen's bragging aside regarding music and concerts, but from a sports perspective, did you get the sense either at the time or later on in life that you were spoiled being a New Yorker? I mean, even if the teams, you know, did well or did ill, you still had two football teams, two hockey teams, two baseball teams. Two basketball teams when the Nets became the New Jersey Nets and, and merged. Um, not to mention the U.S. Open, various other sports activities. It just seemed to me that the Cosmos, who, the New York Cosmos, who were huge in the 70s in the North American Soccer League. I mean, that's a powerhouse lineup, it seems, of activity, regardless of their success. Well, yes, but when, when I started paying attention on a much smaller scale. I mean, as, as people can appreciate here, knowing the history of the Pacers, I mean, the early ABA days were very modest 
and and part of the the history, part of what makes that whole effort so impressive, was how the membership could hold it together against all odds financially. Uh, I mean that I think the the nets were taken a little more seriously when the Nassau Coliseum opened in 72 and they had invested in Rick Barry and Lou Carnesecca who had been at St. John's and would eventually go back was the head coach. So Louie brought a lot of credibility to that. But before that, I mean, they were just kind of this team playing with this weird ball and a three-point line, what's that about? <laughs> and and I used, because I'm from Queens, I mean, I, I used to go to Forest Hills. And I mean, you basically had one concrete structure that had a capacity of about 12,000, maybe a little bit more, and very limited outer courts as far as spectators. And that was it. I mean, yeah, when, when you compare the, the current complex in Flushing Meadow, which is the second iteration of that after they moved initially in 78, I mean, this is like another planet. Well, you look at the the, the men's or women's uh, U.S. Open tennis championships, the final matches in the early 70s, late 60s, and they're playing on one court that's on grass that's literally surrounded by other grass courts. It's just like playing at a park. There's all these courts lined up together. And then you're right. The, the megapolis that is the current Flushing Meadow, it's, it's night and day. And the other thing I should throw in there to have you comment on is away from leagues and teams, just having Madison square garden as the preeminent sport indoor sports facility, certainly the most famous in the country I mean, the Ali Frazier fights, plus, you know, the, the, the amazing boxing matches that have been held in, in Madison Square Garden throughout its history. It's, a, it's basically a litany of some of the greatest matches of all time. Agreed. However, having said that, the notion of knocking down the old Pennsylvania Station, which was regarded in architectural circles universally as this gem, destroying that building to put a basketball and hockey arena on top of a train station is one of the most illogical decisions that I think any city planner ever made in the history of the human race. And, and the, the city is still trying to get out from under that by renovating what used to be the post office across 8th Avenue as sort of a front door to Penn Station. But anybody could tell you who's commuted through Penn Station or gone through Amtrak, I mean, people on submarines feel more of a sense <laughs> of, of space than people that come up in, in Penn Station. And the notion that this is how people are being welcomed into New York City, going through this submarine experience. But I mean, having said all that, sorry about the rant, <laughs> Just because of where it is and and the events it attracted, I mean it 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 really was the the logical heir to you know the former garden between 49th and 50th on 8th Avenue. And the fact that it was conceived as more than a sports facility, it was clearly 
a sports and entertainment facility, which when you think back to the early 60s, when the planning first took shape, that was not a concept that a lot of cities had. I mean, in those days, you still had the musty old cramped buildings like the old garden, like Boston Garden. You know, Chicago Stadium. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the notion of like, going to a concert there, I mean, it's like, okay, if the act is really good, I'll go. But it, you could find lots of more comfortable places. And so the, that transition that it was conceived as a sports and entertainment center was, was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. It just shouldn't have been on that footprint. I've actually seen pictures of what they torn down and you couldn't be more right. It's astonishing how beautiful it was. I mentioned a few minutes ago about the sports bug, the writing bug. Was writing something that you enjoyed uh, as a youth, as a student, and it just kind of naturally grew uh, through college? I do public relations for a living, so I do a ton of writing. Writing is my favorite part of what I do. It can be a lot of fun. It can be maddening, but a lot of fun. When did you first cotton to that? Well, in my junior year of high school, I remember being advised that there were a number of electives that could replace the standard English course in the spring of junior year at Bayside High School in Queens. And one of them was journalism. And so I thought, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I, I mean, I wish I could, I wish I was smart enough to say that there was some grand plan all along, but that would not be the truth. But I mean, I did recognize that, I mean, I, I liked English. I mean, I, I did pretty well in it, but it, it was, it was interesting to have this option to turn to. And the best thing that happened to me is that the, the teacher, Benjamin Bronstein, had been a reporter for the old Brooklyn Eagle in the 50s. Well, I mean, the Eagle folded in the 50s. So this would have been roughly 15 years before he's teaching our class. And, and what I remember is he wasn't particularly popular because he was so demanding, but I loved being in his class because he was so demanding. And he laid out like here, if you're gonna do this, here are the expectations, here's what you need to do. I mean, the whole sense of precision, having a sense of purpose behind what you're trying to accomplish, uh, Obviously, things like spelling, grammar, punctuation. Uh, I mean, it's just it. It's just kind of standard stuff. And you know, the more that I look back, I mean, I knew at the time that this was a really valuable experience, but the fact that in in a New York City public school with somewhat limited resources, to have somebody there that had done it in the industry and brought that kind of industry experience to our classroom was such a gift. I mean, there are a lot of college programs now that don't have people in that position with industry experience to, to be able to build that bridge and 
and describe what the expectations are. And so that's really what, what launched a lot of things because when I, when I got to Fordham, I felt like I had a foundation in place. I mean, I knew I had an awful lot to learn, don't get me wrong, but I knew that I was gonna be as well prepared as anybody there to start out, you know, whether it was working for the Fordham Ram, which was a student newspaper or working for WFUV, which has produced all these famous people in the broadcast business. Like um, who? I mean, it's all, well, we'll start with Vin Scully. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, and you know, and the, and the, the only thing that I, the only claim to fame, and I, and I think I actually told him this once, the only claim to fame that I can state connecting me with him is that when I was a freshman and sophomore, they were using the same control board in the studio that was there in the late 1940s when he was there. <laughs> they had the same equipment, what, 20 something years later. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll start with Vin, which is why if you, if, to me, if you want to talk about comparing alums from different programs. That I was imagining Sarah, is Syracuse. Out, there are a bunch of them out there. I, my opinion is when you get to the name Scully, that's where we arrive at Checkmate. Yeah, because and, and, there's uh, nobody else that can get past that. But And IU, claim, has, IU has Dick Enberg. That's our claim to fame. Right. But he was a grad student. He was. Got his PhD. So right. that gets a little extra. But uh, Mike Brain, who's been the voice of the NBA Finals for, I think, a decade or more. Uh, Michael Kay's done the Yankees for about 30 years. Bob Papa's been the voice of the Giants for a bunch of years. Chris Carino has done the Nets for a ton of years. Spiro Didis has done very well with CBS and Turner, was involved in the NCAA, some of the NCAA games this year. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people have done very well there. I was once asked... Um, I, I was mentioning this to someone on a radio program and, and the host was kind of surprised because he, he wasn't aware of this. And he said, wow, so Fordham is kind of like the Syracuse of the South. And I said, <laughs> no, Syracuse is the Fordham of the North. I mean, let's, let's get this straight. Yeah. If you listen to Mike Tirico, he never, uh, he never misses a chance to mention his Syracuse. And I'm sure there are others I can't remember. Off the top of my head, Northwestern would be another school, or Nerd Western, as I think it's called. What did you get to write about while you were at Fordham, and how did that shape your career later? Uh, a, a variety of things, which, I mean, I think the thing that it did that shaped me the most was developing an appreciation for diversity and different topics and diving into things that you may not know that much about. Uh, for example, the women's basketball program was in its not necessarily embryonic stages when I got there, but not much past that. But I just found myself, I mean, even though they hadn't been around very long and people didn't know that much about them, I mean, that made me want to 
find things out even more. And and so I I tried to take on as much as I could in, in writing about different teams, different personalities, different coaches. I mean, I mean it was really a, a variety of things. At the time, men's basketball was a little bit more ambitious than it's been in recent years. And so they were scheduling fairly high profile games. And so that was my initial introduction to real harsh deadlines because every once in a while they would play in the second game of a doubleheader in the garden. Mm -hmm. So it's a nine o'clock game. It's over at 11. And I would walk from the garden to this dreary printing facility on either 23rd or 24th street on the west side of Manhattan. It was the kind of place that if you went in with a camera and a roll of color film, all the pictures would still come out in black and white. It was one of those places. And, you know, and I would have 40 minutes to turn around what I had. And then the next day I would go from my dorm in the Bronx and I would get on the subway and go to Penn Station to get all of the papers. I mean, obviously you could get some of the papers in the Bronx, but Newsday, which is primarily circulating on Long Island, you had to go to Penn Station to get it. And then I would ride the train home and compare what I did with what these people at working for pro outlets did, which I learned had its hazards about it because I remember specifically sitting on the D train and reading this one story and thinking, I stink. <laughs> like I, compared to this guy, I, I, I just stink. And the mistake of putting too much emphasis on that is that the byline was a young reporter named Tony Kornheiser who had graduated from covering Long Island, Nassau County high schools to colleges. So he wasn't Mr. Tony yet. Whatever happened to him? Did he ever? I, I think he's. I think he's made his mark. <laughs> but yeah, there were that. That was a hazard. I learned that. Don't compare your work to Mr. Tony. My kids. Well, they're not the only ones, but my kids especially give me a bit of grief because I do public relations for a living. Yet my graduate degree is in medieval history uh, from IUPUI, as both my degrees are. And that's where you are currently. And, and sometimes not only from these knuckleheads, but from others are like, kind of go, how did you do from one to the other? Like, how does one help the other? And my argument is that, you know, writing a thesis and doing the research into 14th century England helped me become a better writer, a better thinker. Were there classes that you took outside of journalism that made you a better writer, a better thinker? Um. Writing, possibly. Thinking, absolutely. You know, and, and that included some classes where I struggled, you know, like philosophy classes. Uh, I made the mistake after doing very well in an intro philosophy class in the fall of my freshman year, I thought, well, this is pretty easy. And so, like, I can sign up for this 300-level course. How hard can it be? Please tell me but it was on like, Nietzsche. <laughs> it, it was like riding the subway in Moscow. Like, you're surrounded by people that are speaking some language, but 
it, it's not the language that you speak, <laughs> but the exposure. And yes, I mean, just in terms of creating critical thinking and everything that comes with it. I mean, I, I probably would have a hard time listing all the, the courses that helped me do that. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is award-winning and IEPUI Sports Capital Journalism Program Director, Michael Moran. You've been in Indiana for about like seven, eight years now. Maybe if I read your bio. Well, almost eight and a half. Is there a uh, Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Ooh. Are we talking about sporting related or? No limits. No limits. Well, you, I mean, even though I've only lived here for eight and a half years, which in the grand scheme of things is not very long, but uh, since my wife grew up in Columbus, which is not too far down 65, and I've been coming here between personal and personal trips and work trips for more than 40 years on a fairly regular basis. You know, when, when you add up between the colleges or Colts or Pacers or you know, what Pan American games. And so I, I think back to the vision that people had early on. There was a, a very helpful public relations person named Dave Blackmer in the early 80s, who was working with one of the racing teams. It was extremely helpful because the first time I went through the gates at the Motor Speedway, and, you know, and I've said this to students and they laugh, but I'm telling them I'm, I'm only kidding a little bit. About all I knew the first time I went into that place is that they discouraged right turns. <laughs> no, anything beyond that, I was fairly clueless. And so a number of people were very helpful in just helping me, first of all, helping me know what I didn't know. And so one day leading up, you know, the, it was the week leading up to the race and I was going to be here all week. And he said, well, as, I mean, as long as you're going to be here all week, I mean, why don't we go to lunch one day and I'll take you for a brief ride and talk about some of these plans we have. And he talked about what they were gonna do with the White River. And he talked about mm. the, the, the early stages of discussions of trying to attract maybe the NCAA one day, like all these things that eventually lined up. And he dropped me off on Capitol Street near the, the Hyatt. And he pointed beyond the convention center at this empty footprint. 
And he looked me in the eye and he said, we are going to build a dome stadium and we are going to bring an NFL team to Indianapolis. And I remember I was so stunned. I, I didn't say anything. All I could think of is well, good luck with that. <laughs> but if you had told me that not only would they deliver on the stadium, which was built without a team, which a lot of people either never knew or have forgotten. I mean, this could have been San Antonio. Exactly. Easily. Not only did they build a stadium and get the team and it won a Super Bowl, but the fact that there would be another stadium and they would host a Super Bowl in downtown Indianapolis. I mean, anybody that spent time here in the early 80s would say, what have you been smoking? And I have asked that question. We've had David Frick on, who was the deputy mayor who did the negotiations for it, um, whether it's Mark Miles or, or, you know, Bill Brenner, a lot of the sports folks we've had on the same thing. Jim Morris, if I had told you in 1982 that not only because I grew up here my whole life, I was born in 67. I lived here the whole time, except for when I was in the army from 87 to 90. But if, if I had told you in 1982, not only are we going to build a stadium with no team, but the Colts are going to come here. And the Colts were one of the iconic franchises of the old NFL, mostly through Johnny Unitas, but still. And we're going to host a Super Bowl. And oh, by the way, we're going to completely redefine what it means to host a Super Bowl. Right. You would have said, and then I just kind of shut up and there's this pause and everyone says what you just said. It was said, well, you need to be drug tested because there's no chance in hell that any of those things are going to happen. And I mean, the, the thing that kind of put the cap on that whole experience is that the fact that you had the, the Giants and the Patriots playing in that game. And, and in my previous life, I covered the Giants when they were really bad. And, and I know a lot of people who have covered them over the years. And I, and I know people that have covered the Patriots. And those are two pretty demanding, high stress, competitive groups. And for them, to come away from this town, both raving about the convenience and the fact you can walk to everything and the assortment of restaurants and like all those things. I mean, those are two <laughs> tough groups to satisfy. And, and this East Coasters. more than did that. Uh, you anticipated a question with something you just mentioned a few minutes ago. So I wanna ask you now, uh, you're from New York, went to college in New York, covered all these New York teams. I mean, New York is the big city in the world, certainly our most iconic city in the United States, host of all these amazing events and, and championship teams. But it is Indianapolis that has the largest one-day sporting event in the entire world. What were your impressions the first time you were at the Indianapolis 500 on a race day? How personal it is. That was the biggest surprise. How even um, when, when you look at me, one of the most fun things on the morning, you know, you obviously you have to get there insanely early to, you know, just to be able to park and get inside. Watching you know, from the, the media area, which I think is on the fourth floor, it's either the third or fourth floor of that structure, not far from the start finish line, just north of the pagoda. 
but and you're up high enough that it, when you look out different windows, you can see all these different bleachers filling up. I mean, in every direction. And so on on that level, it looks like this gargantuan thing. But the biggest thing I learned that first year was how personal it is and, and how families either would be all behind somebody or maybe the parents are behind racer A and the kids are behind racer B because they want to get <laughs> under the parent's skin or you know everybody has their loyalties. That was the biggest thing I learned. And I remember this might not have been the first year it could have been the second year, but there was this rookie from Mexico named Jose Legarza, who was mm -hmm. very talented and had these, he was extremely handsome, had these dark features. I mean, it was the heartthrob of that year's race. And during the race, something happened and, it, and the, the car just stopped working. And, and rolled to a halt. There was no incident, there was no accident. And when Tom, Tom Carnegie's voice boomed over the PA and said that Garza was out of the car and out of the race, the, the media used to be in that level beneath the upper level of the grandstand, which I think is now suites. I mean, there's that thin layer that that basically hangs from the bottom of the upper deck in the grandstand along the start finish line, and so you're you're basically you're you're surrounded by all these sounds from the grandstand. And I remember when when Carnegie said, "You know, Jose Legarza is out of the race." There was this. <clears throat> And I realized it was the same sound as when your favorite guy's at the plate with the bases loaded and two out and he pops up. And I, <clears throat> except it was like 50,000 people in that vicinity going like that. And, and that's what I didn't realize. I mean, I looked at it from a distance as this gargantuan thing, but I had no idea how, how personal it was. Because a lot of the people when they, I used to work at the Holiday Inn Airport in the early 90s, and they would host, you know, corporate clients coming in for the race, you know, a block of 20 rooms, 30 rooms, 40 rooms, right? You know, they want some sort of contest. So Pennzoil or whomever were bringing in their, their best clients or their best employees to go to the race. And when I was checking them in, I worked the front desk. I'd always say, have you ever been to the race before? And most people would say no, because they're coming from out of town, right? Like, no, I've never been. And I would always just kind of smile. And I'm like, I'll see, I'll be here tomorrow night, please. I want to hear what you have to say, because we're inordinately proud of the 500 as we should be. It's a, it's, it's a brilliant event made more brilliant, quite frankly, through people like Mark Miles and, and Roger Pinsky and the list goes on and on, right? Tony Holman for his time and the iconic racers, the list, Doug Bowles, Allison Langdon, list goes on. But it would imagine that the universal reaction was one of, wow, A, and B, I've never seen so many people in my entire life. But you, being from New York City, 
was that impressive to you as all? Because just walking down a New York City street on a 70-degree day has just got to be packed. Yeah, but but it's different. You know, and there might have been, I, I never went to like the mega free concerts in Central Park. Um, and I'm sure some of them probably, and I'm not saying they had as many people as they would get on race day, but I'm sure there were concerts that were in excess of 100,000 people when you counted everybody in, in Central Park. But, but it's different. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, there's nothing how the, that grandstand somehow becomes so small. Like, like right from the start, you would, you would hear this description from drivers, like when all the people are there, it's, and, and the race starts and, you know, and, you know, and here we go. And, and I remember, I can't remember who I should credit with the description. It might've been Johnny Rutherford, but I'm not certain. But somebody described it as feeling like you're driving down a dark alley into a closet and turning left. <laughs> Because the, the, all of the humanity just compresses the surface where the competition happens. I mean, I, I'm not explaining this very well, but it, it's like the, the bigger it becomes, the more compact it becomes all at once. We actually had Johnny Rutherford on the Leaders and Legends podcast. He was a terrific, terrific guest. And I didn't ask him that exact question, but something like, do you notice the crowd, I think was one of the questions. And he goes, you do and you don't. You know they're there, but you can't focus on it because, you know, you're racing at 200 miles an hour, four inches away from the next car. Right. What were some of your first jobs coming right out of Fordham? And can you remember some of the first bigger events or matches you covered that really kind of set the plate for how you covered things as you matured as a sports writer? Well, I, I started, uh, Fordham had an internship there, which was for academic credit. You worked there one day a week. You were treated as a regular reporter, most of the time covering high school games, whatever they needed. I would get, when I would arrive in the office, I would, there would be a, an, an envelope with my name on it with a $10 bill inside that covered gas and tolls. And I would have given them an envelope with $10 <laughs> inside to cover whatever they wanted. And then when that ended, uh, I mean, probably the, from that experience, which was from early October to mid-December, the most newsworthy thing is that on the day that the Giants announced in December of 74, after two years at Yale Bowl, that they would be playing at Shea Stadium in 1975 because the commute to Yale became too much, which would mean that for the 1975 calendar year, Shea Stadium would host the Mets, Yankees, Jets, and Giants all in one year. Because they were redoing and Yankee Stadium. Yeah, that's right. It, that was, yes, that was the, the final year of the renovation process. And, and the news broke suddenly and unexpectedly 
and none of the staffers that normally would do something like that were available. So they handed it to the kid. And, and that was the first time I was on uh, the back page. But, but then for almost two years, um, I was a part-timer, which was a wonderful experience, but there was very limited writing because they had very good full-time people covering high schools. And my main responsibility was basically office work and trying to find ways to make a contribution when you're, you know, you're answering phones. You know, you're, you're getting phone calls from people in bars that want you to settle a dispute or like a bet, you know? I, mean, <laughs> I would answer those kind of calls. That's Bill Bennery would talk about that as well, that when the, we worked at the star as uh, whatever his, you know, scut work was. And I know, you know, Bill, um, like the phone would ring all the time. You had to call for scores. I remember calling the star uh, desk to find out if a certain player had committed to IU because today was decision day. It seems right. like eons ago, but right. it was so woven into that sort of part of sports culture. And, and on I mean, needless to say, I, I probably should have prefaced this, but needless to say, I had no life, none, zero. <laughs> and, and, and to illustrate that, I'll point out that my Saturday, Saturday night shift was from 8 p.m. to 3 a.m., uh, which tends to cut into socializing. And, but the deal that I cut with the slot person who was the editor in charge at night, Bill Gallagher, who was always treating me very well because he appreciated the fact that like, I'm gonna do whatever they need. Like whatever, I don't care how tedious it is. Like you just tell me what you need and I'll get it done. And so the deal that we cut was that I could go home at two and get paid for that last hour if I filed pictures. I mean, every day and evening there would be these big metal baskets in the middle of the slot and all of the pictures that would accumulate in the course of the day and night, whether it was staff photos from different events or features, whether it was wire service photos from different events, whether it was photos from the existing files that had been taken out to apply to features, somebody had to put them away. And this is obviously, you know, prehistoric times. So they're like, there was no digital process. I mean, that was science fiction stuff. And so somebody had to take each of these eight and a half by 11 photos and put them in a file cabinet alphabetized by individual or subject. And so that's what I would do to get home early. I will confess right up front, I was a horrible picture filer because I would always <laughs> read the captions and I and I remember seeing you know Dan Isso left who scored 53 points for the Kentucky Colonels um, you know and and Pete Maravich right who scored you know whatever well one day I come into the office I think it was just to kind of pick up a paycheck. This is where the students Google the concept of coming to an office to pick up your paycheck <laughs> and what you do with it then, such as it was. 
And, and all these editors are including the leadership of the department, they're sitting around this table and they're looking like somebody just got hit by a bus. And it's like, what's the matter? What's wrong? And they said, well, we've got this really good story and we, we have no idea how to illustrate. I mean, it, it, Newsday would have a double truck on Sundays that would have this usually a really creative layout over two pages in the middle of a tabloid sports section. And this was in the dawn of the era of the concept of sports psychology. And so the story was about advances that were beginning to take place in the study of the fear of losing. And is there such a thing as choking? I mean, is that just a phrase that people use to criticize or is there actually something to that in the way some people respond? And, and there were all these quotes from people that were emerging in this course of study and it was really well done. Well, I listened to this and I said, I can get you a bunch of pictures and if you give me 10 to 15 minutes, and I went back to the files and I would fill up every Saturday, so Sunday morning at 1 a.m. and come out with pictures like Carlton Fisk with a towel over his head in the clubhouse after the Red Sox lost game seven or like other people registering disappointment. I mean, I came up with probably a dozen, maybe more photographs illustrating disappointment in different forms. And to their credit, they treated me like I was king for a day. <laughs> and they didn't have to, even though, I mean, I realize now I'm in 15 minutes, this 22 year old nobody just solved what was shaping up as a pretty significant challenge. Like, We've got this great story, but we have nothing to illustrate it. And, and like, that's why I say to their credit, I mean, they were very kind. And, you know, and I've used that example for students many times. I don't know exactly what the digital equivalent of that would be, but I'm convinced that it does exist. And even if you're working for an organization at an entry level, and you think nobody's paying attention to what you're doing or how you go about your work, you'll be pleasantly surprised when you stop to think of different ways that you can contribute to the overall good. And then if, if the leadership is of the kind of quality that I was blessed to have at Newsday in those days, they'll, they'll remember you for that. It's not often that New York and Indiana had sports teams. I'm searching my memory here to make sure I don't overstate this. New York and Indiana had sports teams collide. But famously, in the 90s, the Pacers and the Knicks put on several shows, for lack of a better term, that turned into these massive uh, punky, plucky gladiator contest. What was it like to 
cover those. And was the Hicks versus Knicks sort of branding or mindset one that you found compelling? Well, Reggie Miller was called a lot of things in a lot of different cities when he played. Uh, some of them affectionate, others not so much. I never viewed him as a hick. <laughs> He's from uh, California, so yeah, probably not. Yeah. No, he also wasn't even the best player in his own driveway. I mean, let's get that straight. I mean, I know he's in the Hall of Fame and is very deserving of all that, but he's not all driveway. Cheryl is all driveway. Another Hall of Famer. But Rick Smith, who played at Marist, which is you know kind of the extended suburbs beyond the city, I mean, he was an important part of that. Uh, Larry Brown, obviously, with his history on Long Island at a at a, a time in the late 50s and early 60s when you know, the, the, the high school scene and the playground scene in New York was just, I mean, there are Hall of Fame names that you can trace to that period. And, and Larry was an important part of that before he was off to Carolina. Um, it was, you said, show. I was thinking the word that came to mind was theater. It was great theater. And you, you never knew what was going to happen, which, when you think about it, that contributes to compelling theater. Uh, and I will say that for those of us of a certain age that grew up with the Knicks of the late 60s and early 70s, which, I mean, those were very disciplined, tough-minded teams, but there was also an elegance about them. I mean, Earl Monroe and Walt Frazier finding a way to share a ball in the backcourt. Um, Bill Bradley and Dave DeBusher and, and you know, Willis is remembered for coming out in game seven and making two shots, which is in many ways unfair because that came to crystallize his leadership and what he brought. 1970, right? 1970. Yeah, it was the game seven the of Lakers. the finals. Mm -hmm. Um, but elegant is not a word that people would apply to the Knicks of the early to mid nineties. And in many ways, like if you grew up with the Knicks of that earlier generation, it could be tough on the eyes, but they competed. And, and, and I, a lot of people seem to think they competed in Pat Riley's image which to a certain extent was true. I think more to the point is they, they competed in Patrick Ewing's image. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of that came from. And so, I mean, you, I mean, it, it, was, it was just great theater in, in both places. Were you in the garden when Reggie was doing his thing and taunting Spike Lee and well, I, sometimes in a working capacity, sometimes in a non-working capacity, yes. You hear a lot about about those teams and those battles. There was a lot of talent on each team. But did you get the sense that New York felt it should win because they're the Knicks? And it's not like the Pacers that had you know any sort of sustained success 
in the NBA. They had a couple of playoff seasons, but but not many. But the the mid '90s is kind of when they when the Pacers first emerged as an NBA contender slash powerhouse, which they sustained for several years after that. But but did they look down on the Pacers despite Reggie? No, no, I don't think so. And 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 I don't. Obviously, it was a while ago, but when I think back, I don't remember sensing any feeling of entitlement because we're here and this is the Mecca and anything like that, because the reality was the Knicks were down so far for so long. I mean, they that franchise wasted a serious chunk of Patrick's early career. Right. I mean, a lot of the tread came off those tires playing for bad teams. And, you know, and there were there were some flourishes in the 80s. Bernard, Patrick, Bernard, you know, would go for 60 in the playoffs in Joe Lewis Arena against the Pistons. But but those were the exceptions. And so when when all of a sudden they're at a level where well, I mean, they've got a chance to get to the finals. I mean, there there was a sense of renewal and, and a sense of wonder almost because you had this whole generation of Nick fans that had really never known anything like this at all. Kind of like the current generation. years old. <laughs> kind of like the current generation of Knicks fans who don't know anything at all. God love them. Well, I mean, the other day I was, I was texting my son. He had sent me this, uh, this image of 20 something looking Nick fans and all their gear you know, basically jumping up and down as they came out towards 7th Avenue after a game. And and my reply was, I would tell them to act like they've been there before, except they've never been there before. <laughs> so, I mean, it, now the drought wasn't as extended as the recent one has been. But, I mean, they were irrelevant for a significant amount of time. And, you know, and that's what was so special about finally Patrick getting a team that that he had earned and and the credibility that Riley's leadership brought to the whole franchise you hear a lot of discussion in in the media about the New York media and you know will so and so be able to handle the New York media is there such a thing as the New York media uh, yes and no the, the reason I would say yes is because it, it's not dissimilar to what is happening in a bunch of places where you've got media followings that are so fragmented and sometimes people will cover things in person and sometimes they won't. I'm speaking pre-pandemic here. Sometimes like you may get criticism on Twitter or some other platform from somebody that never shows up and never asks a question. You've got that in a lot of places, including New York, except it's just on a, a bigger stage. What, what I found is what tends to make it different is the competitiveness. I mean, covering the Yankees in the Steinbrenner, Billy Martin, Reggie era, 
other than the White House, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. In term, and this is, I mean, heaven help us if we if we had real time access to communication. I mean, for I'll give you an example. On a Sunday evening at O'Hare in late July of '78, when Billy Martin said of Reggie and George, oh, one's yeah. a born liar, the other's convicted. He said that near a newsstand at O'Hare, just before the Yankees were going to get on a flight to Kansas City. Two reporters were with him when he said it. I was not one of the two. I was maybe 50 feet away, checking in my luggage, and had no idea. None. I was beaten as cleanly as you could be beaten. And at seven o'clock the next morning at the Crown Center Hotel in Kansas City, my phone rang from an editor that was really interested in knowing what the hell is going on. Well, when you're thrown into that level of competition and some of the people on the beat have been on the beat almost as long as you've been on the planet. Like that, that's going to make you grow up really fast. And that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not, I am not suggesting that covering the New York Yankees, particularly in those days, had any relevance in the same solar system as covering the White House. But what I am saying is within the context of the daily competition and the volatility in the beat, in that you had high profile people with not small egos that would say all kinds of things when triggered. I mean, it was intense competition every single day. And, you know, I look back on that and that, that definitely helped sharpen my reporting skills and, and just understanding the, the level of commitment that's required. But in, I mean, you have lots of people there that are sincerely interested in understanding why people are failing. I mean, particularly in baseball, because I mean, baseball is an industry of coping with failure. I mean, the best hitters are unsuccessful 70% of the time. Right. And so, yes, I mean, are there people that are going to rip, you know, whoever goes 0 for 5? And, and is that going to echo, enter an echo chamber? Yes. But to a large extent, I think the whole notion of can so-and-so handle New York is, is largely overstated. I mean, as long as you give it a chance. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Malcolm Moran, award-winning sports journalist and director of the Sports Capital Journalism Program, IPUI. We're going to ask him about his IPUI connection here in just a minute. Uh, Malcolm has covered 37 NCAA Final Fours, 11 Super Bowls, 16 World Series, and four Olympic Games. I remember when we interviewed Mike Lopresti and reading all the places he had, all the events he had covered. I, we couldn't even come close to having a legitimate discussion about all the things he witnessed. We're going to be in that same boat with you. 
of course. Uh, but I want to ask you about one particular person who seems to be the focus of so much of, of sports journalism in the past several decades. And not long ago, because I'm addicted to YouTube, I was watching the Michael Jordan retirement celebration after he retired the first time from the Bulls. And it's the segment where Ahmad Rashad is interviewing Dean Smith and Bobby Knight. Jordan played for Smith at North Carolina, played for Knight on the 1984 Olympic team. And John Wertheim, who's I'm sure you know very well, uh, has been on the podcast and we're hoping he'll come back because he's writing a book on that year, 1984. Ahmad Rashad asked Knight a question and Knight's response was, I'm not really sure that Michael Jordan is the best person who's ever played basketball. But I think he's probably the best person who's ever played anything. What are your recollections of covering Michael Jordan and watching him play, especially during those battles he had and the Bulls had with the Knicks? Well, early on, the, the, the thing that has either been overlooked or forgotten is that there's a reason he wasn't the number one pick in the draft in, in 84. I mean, he was a very good player. Uh, his last two years at Carolina, years two and three, well, I mean, first of all, he, he makes the shot that beats Georgetown in his freshman year and, and played very well in that game, especially down the stretch. But that was not the reason they won the game. The reason they won the game is that James Worthy's body language told Patrick Ewing, I am going to be here all night, big fella. When a lot of guys, including seniors, like you think of the difference normally between a freshman and a senior, there were seniors in Patrick's freshman year that were scared to death of him. And Worthy, just in his body language and everything about it, I mean, it was like, no, no, like, I'm going to be here all night. If it wasn't for that, Jordan would have would not have been shooting that ball in a one point game because Worthy knew the pain of losing the NCAA title game because he lost it the year before to Isaiah and IU. Right, and and that team had lost Al Wood, who graduated, right. who was an exceptional player. And I mean, if if you go back and and you look at the Carolina media guide. And there, there was a, a brief bio to this freshman, Mike Jordan. <laughs> I mean, obviously people there that even in those days were following recruiting very closely. I mean, that was one of those hotbeds where people would pay attention. I mean, he was highly regarded, but he was not this national can't miss I mean, he was not LeBron James. Right. He was not regarded as LeBron James was as a high school senior. I mean, if the NBA draft had been open, I, I don't think it would have been very smart at all for him to, to have even thought about taking that plunge in 1981. So, you know, he makes the shot as a freshman. 
as a sophomore, they lose to Georgia in a regional final where it really should have been North Carolina State against North Carolina in a semifinal at Albuquerque. They lose to Georgia. And I mean, Georgia had Vern Fleming who wound up being on the Olympic team, but Carolina was viewed as the better team. And then in his junior year, they lost to an IU team that was very up and down all throughout that season. I mean, that season was largely one step forward, one step back. North and, Carolina. And it had. proved to be that way right to the end. I mean, yeah. They beat Carolina largely because Kenny Smith was hurt. It was either a wrist or a hand. Right, it was. And I mean, if if Kenny Smith is healthy, that's a six to eight point game. I mean, let's Alfred be, was Alfred was lights out that night, of course. And then North Carolina had five number one draft picks on their roster. But, but Knight it seemed to have recognized by the time Jordan came to the Olympic team, I watched a video where Isaiah talks about the pros playing the Olympic team in 84, just in their exhibition, and Knight telling Isaiah, this, this one here, pointing to Jordan, he's different. So it seemed to me the recognition came relatively early before the pros that Jordan was going to be some sort of impact player, for lack of a better term. But it, but it wasn't this... I mean, it was a very different era because the whole ESPN culture was really in its infancy. I mean, at that point, ESPN hadn't existed for five years yet. I mean, it was fall of, what, September of 79. The Olympics were July, August of 84. It was definitely his coming out party. Right. I mean, the, the criticism you would hear in ACC circles, which is probably unfair, was that the only coach in America that could hold Michael under 20 points a game is Dean Smith, which is probably not fair because I, I think Michael would be the first one to tell you his Carolina experience was pretty valuable. But there's no question, I mean, he was not the only good player on that team. Uh, but I remember there was a telling sequence when they, they wound up beating Spain in the gold medal game, but this was in pool play. They beat Spain and the the coach of the team from Spain was very outgoing and he, his English was very good, but he preferred to use an interpreter during the press conferences. And so he's talking about Jordan and he says something and the, the interpreter says, uh, he is like robot. And we're sitting there and we look at each other like, what, like robot? Like, what, are, what is this guy talking about? And a few seconds later, the interpreter says, interpreter clarifies, he said he is like rubber. <laughs> and so, I mean, if you look at the box scores from those games, I mean, it's not like all of a sudden he's dropping 40 on Uruguay. Right. But there was an effortlessness and for lack of a better description, an elegance to his game that I'm sure if you were looking closely when he was in Carolina, you, you would probably see hints of that all over the place. But the, the Olympics were when he really started becoming Michael Jordan. And, and it's interesting how in the days since when, when Bob would, you know, be on the dinner circuit, you know, the after dinner circuit, 
and it's like me and Mike became part of like the after dinner speech exactly. routine. I, I don't know it was all like that uh, at the time. I mean, I, I can remember when the Bulls were playing in Charlotte in a playoff series. And this is one of these odd requests you get from the office where they said, well, I was working for the Chicago Tribune at the time. And they said, well, when you're on your way home from Charlotte, could you stop in Wilmington and do something about Jordan's hometown? Well, it's like a four and a half to five hour drive from Charlotte to Wilmington. It's like, no, that's that's not on the way. I'll go there, <laughs> I'll do the story, but that's not on the way home. So there was this museum that had this history of all kinds of things in, in the city's history. And one of the things that they had behind glass was a paper that Michael had done about his experience that might've been at, just at the trials, unless it was for a course that he completed after he left school. But I mean, I only saw the cover and I saw the teachers or the, the, the instructor or the professor's comments, but uh, I think the comments said something about, I'd, I'd love to learn more about this. It would be very interesting to see what young Michael had to say about that experience. You're the director of the Sports Capital Journalism Program at IUPUI. Please tell us about it. Uh, it is, the, the core of it is the Masters in Sports Journalism, which was the first of its kind in the country when it was launched a little more than a decade ago. There, there's also an undergraduate concentration in sports journalism, which is more limited than a major. I mean, it is a, a small number of courses that you take within your major, which is usually journalism. So there's an undergraduate component and a, and a and uh, the, and the, the reason that the Masters has always been anchored here is the reason the program's here. And frankly, it's the reason I'm here because there was a recognition when the concept was first created more than a decade ago that there are all these opportunities here, whether it's coverage opportunities, internship opportunities, entry-level employment opportunities, Colts, Pacers, NCAA, Motor Speedway, AAA Baseball, Minor League Hockey, you know, one step below MLS, soccer, USA Gymnastics, USA Track and Field, like all these organizations are, are in search of help. And so there are all these built-in opportunities, most of which we can walk to. Now, one of the most extreme and wonderful opportunities was the idea that we could get one student into each of 66 games mm -hmm. of the NCAA tournament, which I never would have believed because as, as generous as the initial offer was, that, that was built on my industry relationships, you know, going back a while. The, the original offer of 
one student per venue per round to get a credential came with pretty significant qualifier, which was we're like, we just want to make sure that you understand that there may be, and in fact, there's likely to be certain situations where the demand for coverage of a given matchup exceeds the supply of available media seats. And so in, in those cases, your students would have to cover the game virtually. They wouldn't be able to get in. Is that okay? And I said, sure. I mean, what, whatever is available, we're grateful for. And, and if it comes down to having to cover certain games virtually, I mean, that's a skill that people need to develop now anyway. Good because point. a lot of people are covering a lot of games virtually. Well, to my amazement, that never happened. Up to and including round of 16, Elite Eight, Final Four, you know, there were only 25 media spots on the floor at the Final Four. And Alex Burr, one of our graduate students, was in one of those seats. And, and as you can imagine, judging by all the drama that played out, I mean, there were not only great games, but there were enormous challenges. I mean, the end of the UCLA Gonzaga semifinal was at 11.10 p.m. And Alex was writing for NCAA.com, which I would say about 15 of the 66 games that we covered, we wound up writing for them. And his story was completed by, I think it was 12.42 a.m. with all the chaos that was going on. Well, I mean, you can't put a price on the, the, the confidence that comes from knowing that you were able to navigate through that kind of stressful, high-profile situation. And, and I was in the building, but I wasn't sitting next to him. I mean, I, I might as well have been at home because I was in a different part of the building. I might as well have been texting or calling him <laughs> from home. So, and the reason I say that is because he had to navigate a lot of that on his own. I was, you know, normally when we would take students to the final four in 2019 or earlier, I'd be sitting there with them. So we could have this running dialogue where I could make suggestions or you know, different hints on things they can think about or where they need to go after the game and all of that. Well, that, that was very limited just because of the, you know, the, the way the setup was. And so all of the students uh, did so well under really stressful circumstances and that experience will serve them well for a very long time uh, we're so fortunate to have that program there and the difference uh, between IUPUI 2021 uh, than it was just when I graduated um, in 1998 is is night and day and it's it's a wonderful thing for the city it's a wonderful thing for the for the young folks here not only in Indianapolis because students go to IUPUI uh, from everywhere we end the Leaders and Legends podcast with the same five questions to every guest, although I'm going to change the first question because I already you already answered it earlier. Uh, we'll do this in rapid fire if we can. And are you ready? 
I am as ready as I will be. Usually the first question is, what was your first job? But you mentioned about being an intern uh, in college and such. So I'm going to well, ask you. The actual first job was prior to that was I was a vendor at the original Yankee Stadium. Selling? Selling whatever was available to sell. And, and in those days, the, the, the drinking age was 18. So I could sell beer at 18. Uh, unfortunately, I looked like I was about 13. <laughs> and you had to, this is probably more than you wanted to know, but in those days, they didn't create pre-filled cups. You had to carry a tray of cans and open the can and pour the contents into the cup. Well, you can imagine if you're carrying this tray up and down steps in the upper deck and you're shaking this tray as you go along, when you open each can, it's gonna explode into your chest. And so when you're riding the four train back toward Grand Central at the end of the night, you're gonna look like a 13 year old with a problem. <laughs> And I remember this one woman who seemed really old. She was probably in her early 30s. But with, with my worldview at the time, she's sitting opposite me. And she just kept staring at me and shaking her head. And I just wanted to say, I promise you, I'm just selling the stuff. Like, I didn't drink <laughs> one sip. I promise. So that was my first job. Well, then let's stick with that question and go on to the next one. Number two, what was your first concert? First concert uh, might have been Beach Boys. Fordham was a big Beach Boys school, especially at that time. I don't know that for sure. If it wasn't the Beach Boys, it probably was Chicago. Either one would have been pretty darn good. Yes. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Ooh. Wow, that covers a lot of ground. The Little Prince. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? I would say being in London during World War II, during, during the Blitz. During the Blitz. A last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Uh, Barack Obama. He has been probably the most cited guest if we could ever get him on the podcast then maybe i could get him to have dinner with all these other guests who want to have dinner with him hey, we, there there are rooms in town that could accommodate groups <laughs> you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central indiana garmond construction leaders and legends llc the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Malcolm Moran, sports journalist, and someone who was very generous with his time and knowledge and stories. Thank you, Malcolm, very much. Um, thank you so much for, 
for your interest in our program and, and for being such a good host. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.